Welcome to the East City Wesleyan Church podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And if you would like to learn more about East City Wesleyan Church, please go to ecw.org.nz for more information. Now, here's your podcast. Well, folks, this has been a, a fun journey for me, you know, diving through scripture week by week, knowing that you're in preparation for Sunday, much like me in reading through the story, and if this is your first time here and you don't know what I'm talking about, I'd first of all, I'd like to say welcome home. And the story is a book that was put out a few years back, and it takes scripture and puts it in chronological order for us to follow along the history of events as they unwind for the people of Israel, for creation, Um, all the way to Revelation, and we have the Gospels, and Jesus' birth, his calling of his disciples, the early church, a lot of exciting things. So we're diving into the biblical narrative and asking the question, God, what do you want to teach me through the words on the page, through the living word of God that inspires, that changes, and transforms us from the inside out? And it's been a rocky road for the people of Israel. It's been a tough journey for the Jews. And we're coming up to a time to where they're coming out of the exile underneath Babylon. And they're going back to Jerusalem. Back to the holy city. Back to reclaim what was rightfully theirs. And to see the majestic holiness of God and his people put a stake in the ground. To learn the ways that God instructed them to be and live in the world around them. And... Chapter 19 in the story, it's quite a sentimental story. It's this journey back home to learn, to process, to reflect, and to reclaim. Now, in the sentiment of all this, I don't know about you guys, but when I think about a return home, when I ask you, what does your return home look like? Mine's going to be up on the screen. This is home to me. This is a house I was born and raised in, spent most of my life there. Uh, My mom and dad still live in this home. It's in Marion, Indiana, and there's something about it that just gives me that little fluttering of the heart when I get to go back for holidays, special occasions, to hug my mom, hug my dad, say hi to my siblings when we all gather together under this roof. There's something incredibly special about this place. But in reality, imposing the question on where is home? That comes with a lot of question marks in my head because I've been taught you blossom where you're planted, wherever that might be. And the challenges of moving literally around the globe and making home wherever God had called us. But there's something special about this place. And um, I was on a journey Okay, I I don't remember dates very well, but I remember events. I remember the big moves and the big transitions. And one of the first times I was away from home, I got um, chosen to go to Hoosier Boys States. People from Indiana are called Hoosiers, and none of us know exactly what that means. Um, So I went to Hoosier Boys State, which there was representatives from every school, and we went to a university down in southern Indiana, And I was away from home for a week. And and, and it seemed like forever, you know, being a teenage kid. And and that was one of my first experiences of leaving mom and dad's house and going away. 
Now, it got very real in 1999. I was year 13. I was uh, getting ready to graduate high school. And I had the opportunity with my church to go to San Jose, Costa Rica on a short-term missions trip. Had never been overseas, never had a passport, um, had barely even flown anywhere. And I left Marion, Indiana to head to a foreign country, to a, uh, a place where I couldn't speak the language, but I loved the food. And I worked harder in those seven days than I think I ever have in my entire life. I mean, it was like slave labor, you know, it was intense. But God did so many cool things in my life. And when I came back home, I was a little bit different. I was changed and the experience of home began to change. After my first year of uni, I thought, man, uh, after high school, I spent a summer working in a cast iron foundry covered in black soot and tar and just gross, you know, after a hard night's work. So there's got to be a better way to make an income to pay for uni than going to the foundry every day, day in and day out. So I started looking and I found a job wrangling horses in the mountains of Colorado. I thought, that's a cool job. So I increased my summer wages. I got to live in the mountains and I had a wonderful experience living uh, at Rainbow Trout Ranch in the mountains of Colorado. We sat at 9,600 feet elevation. You'll have to ask Google or Siri to convert that into metric for you because I don't know. And we were way up, way up altitude-wise in the mountains, and it was beautiful. And I was gone for four months. Came back from my second year of uni, and I was a little bit different. And it felt a little bit strange coming back into my bedroom that was exactly how I left it. It was probably a mess, you know, and, and uh, of settling back into home because I lived at my parents' house all four years of university. And... Then there was a time the following summer that I left for a month to Mozambique, Africa to go on a short-term trip with a team from my university to work at a Bible college in Maputo, and, or sorry, in Shai Shai, Mozambique. And it was just a wonderful experience. And I came home for about 24 hours. I saw my girlfriend at the time, Becca, in those 24 hours. I said hello to my family. We shared a couple meals together. And I loaded up my truck and I headed back to the ranch in Colorado to spend the rest of the summer. Three more months that I was going to spend working at uh, Rainbow Trout Ranch. I came home after that summer knowing that uh, that girlfriend of mine, she was going to become more than a girlfriend. I was going to pop the question and ask her to be my wife. And I was going back to uni. And in our hearts became this dream that God put there about moving to this wild, down at the bottom of the earth country called New Zealand. Never been there before, uh, barely knew anyone here, and we had a dream in our hearts to move to New Zealand together. So not long after we welcomed our first child into the world, she was three months old, we came to New Zealand, made it home living down in Papakura, um, and, and we spent two years here. We took a short trip in between to go back and see family. Our second child was born here, and we returned from home ministries after two years, and we went back to Indiana. And I remember walking into my parents' house that definitely seemed a little bit different. Going home, I was changed, and my bedroom had changed. 
My bedroom was no longer my bedroom. It was the computer room. It was the office. It was the store all the extras in the house in the corner and up on the walls. I was like, Mom and Dad, what did you do to my bedroom? I'm like, well, you haven't lived here in quite some time, son. You know, it's, it's okay. And it became the office in my parents' house. We moved to Papua New Guinea, made that home for a little while. Thought we'd be there for years. It turned into six months. We went back to the United States, lived in limbo for a little bit, tried to figure out what we were going to do. Ended up in South Dakota, poured our lives into a church and ministry there for four years. And God uprooted us from there three years ago to come right here to East City Wesleyan Church. In a sense, a bit of a homecoming for Becca and I. But the return home is experienced differently by each and every one of us. No matter if it's going to the parent's house, that special place from your childhood, the country in which you came here from, or the place you go to after you leave service this morning, that it's simply put, you're returning home. There's something that happens inside of me every time, no matter how many years I've been away. Right now, it's just over three years that I've not been in Indiana. And these signs that you see are, are things that do something emotionally inside of me of just making it feel everything is right in the world because I'm home for a short time, for a time of happiness, enjoyment with family and friends, that there's something majestic about the flatness of Indiana. I mean, you literally can see as far as the eye can see because there's no hill that's going to prevent your eyesight. It's completely flat, covered in cornfields. And that picture is the, uh, the bypass that runs through the downtown of Marion, Indiana, my hometown. Potholes, you need a big pickup truck because you'll lose your little car in those potholes. And, but that's home to me. Midwestern, country life, simple. Most people know everybody. It's easy. It's home. Today's chapter in the story, chapter 19 is about God's people and their return home. Those emotional feelings, those, those realizations that they're a little bit different than when they left. But there's still some change that needs to happen. The southern kingdom of Judah has been in exile for 70 years. Now I know what it's like to be away from home for three years, four years, Six months, one month, one week. It's different. Seventy years to be exiled from home. This all came about at the hands of God's loving discipline. You see, the, the 12 tribes of Israel, they're the one that God chose to bring us the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But they failed to accurately represent God to the other nations. If God would continue to bless them and, and, and give them the wildest dreams and desires of their heart, it would have confused people in understanding about Yahweh, the God of Israel, about, oh, you do wrong and you still get rewarded. It wouldn't be helpful to the outsiders beyond the Jews. And, and the nature of the plan of the one true God is to provide a way for each and every one of us to be reclaimed to the purpose, full intent of our very own creation. 
to glorify God, to be in perfect harmony with him. And this wasn't just for the Jews. It's to reclaim what was back in the garden with Adam and Eve, that when God created, it was beautiful. And he was well pleased that we were without blemish and without sin. And God has constantly been trying to reclaim that back to the purposeful intent ever since. So the 70 years have gone, come and gone, and it's time for them to come home, back to Jerusalem. And there's four lessons that we can learn today about coming back home. This experience, this emotion, this reflection. So maybe you or someone you know has drifted away from God. Maybe someone you know is estranged from their family. Or they've made some poor choices. And you or that friend finds that your lives are not working and you just want to come home. This, this message provides the roadmap back. So four things that I want to look at, four areas of coming home, is the first realization that God will make a way. God will provide. If your heart is truly in the right place, God will make a way when there seems to be no way at all. That God did this for Judah. Look at the opening words of chapter 19 of the story, the first verses of the Old Testament, book of Ezra. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. He said, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where the survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with the silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. So in this moment, God is intervening in the upper story to open the door for their return back home. He turned the heart of a pagan king, the most powerful man in the world at the time, towards Judah. What could he do for you and I? It's a pretty loaded question. Some of you who have lived the life of a prodigal have come back home. You've made your return and almost always recount an incident outside of your control that paved the way for you to return. It's part of your story. It's part of your testimony that you share about how God was chasing you. He was running after you with arms wide open to just remind you how truly incredible you are. And he said, just come home. And you were welcomed there. For those of you still living the life of a prodigal, you were thinking there's no way back. But there is. It comes from God's intervention from the upper story into the lower story. But there's something else that we also need to know before we venture back, before we figure this out. So the other reality that I want us all to ponder and know is things need to be different. When you return back to God or your family or sobriety, whatever it is, that's taken you away, that's ripped you apart, that's broken you, your family, your relationship with God. 
Those things have to change. It can't be the same. Not that we have to clean up first before we go back and cry out to our Heavenly Father to forgive us of our sins. But we have to come back with true repentance say, God, I'm sorry for my shortcomings. God, I'm sorry for my sin. God, I'm sorry that breaks your heart. Please break my own through my brokenness and make me new again. He did it in my life. And I know he's done it for a lot of you. So let me point out two major changes in the way Judah is acting. Now verses before the discipline of the exile. Number one, they didn't reinstate a king. So if you recall, God didn't want Israel to appoint a human king. He wanted to lead them directly. But they mumbled and they grumbled. They said, we have to be like the other nations around us. You know, we need to have a powerful, authoritative leader that people can see, that people can witness and know their name and know exactly where they are at all times. They wanted to be like other nations. And God allowed it. It was permissive to God. And we saw a ripple effect of good things and bad things that happened underneath the leadership of the kings. Unfortunately, many of these kings led them far away from the Lord. So now they are back. Their attitude has been there, done that. We've tried to be like the other nations and it didn't work. So the next king to sit on the throne of David will be Jesus. God incarnate, God in flesh, to take on the full form of a man to lead the nation. But it was going to be quite different than what anything or anyone expected. So for those of you who read the chapter this week, did you catch the very first thing they did when their feet hit Jerusalem's soil? It's found in Ezra chapter 3, verse 3. It said, despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening sacrifices. They built an altar for God. It's the first thing. So what are they doing? They're putting God first in their life. They're making him a priority. And through their actions, they're making that very plain and simple to understand. God won't take second place. So for you and I, putting God first, not just on a Sunday morning that some of us might have hit snooze button a few more times than what we wanted to in the cold of the morning. I know I try to wake up pretty early on Sunday mornings, and uh, I think I hit my snooze button for about 30 minutes. Just kept hitting it over and over and over and pulling the blankets tighter and tighter and tighter because I was cold. And I thought, well, I'll go get the fire started. I'll go turn on the heaters to get it warm for my family. I'll be a good husband, a good dad. And I sat next to the heater and roasted my leg off until I felt thawed out. But how easy is it to form excuses of saying, ah, oh, school holidays, it's cold. I think I might just stay at home today. And we find these excuses to disengage from the people of God where it really does something in us to mingle and be together corporately in worship. And I think about all the people returning home back to Jerusalem, about spending that time around the table, spending that time under their roofs and, and thanking God that they could 
leave Babylon and come back to the holy city. But what did they do corporately? They gathered together, built an altar, and they made sacrifices to say God is the King of kings and Lord of lords and will exalt him on high. No excuses. There's times in our lives where we're faced to make excuses for perhaps I don't have time for God right now or I don't feel God. Um, I, I feel distant from God and I'm not spending a lot of time in prayer. I don't have time to read my Bible. I'm not going to church as much or home group or whatever. And we also begin to misunderstand love and grace of our Heavenly Father and, and expectations so how do we keep saying yes to God in all areas of, of life? To not fall into a trap of being a fundamentalist or a legalistic Christian. But how do we say, God, help me to make you a priority in all things? To do that, I know there's areas in my life that need some renovation. It needs to change. Because I simply cannot do the things that I used to do. That things that were a normal habit or practice or routine, I probably need to open my eyes, think about my heart, understand my attitude, and take a really long look in the mirror. Say, God, what do I need to pry my fingers off of? And let you deal with it. Because I'm neglecting you because of different interests, hobbies, struggles addictions of the heart because my desire is not to put a wedge between God and I it's to remove any gap that exists in me knowing him as my Lord and Savior can't do the things I used to do cannot hang with the people that I used to hang with things have to be different and things have to change so number three on this roadmap of returning home is to stay alert to the enemy's schemes. So here's the fact of life. There will always be someone who doesn't want you to recover. They don't want you to get better, to succeed, and you'll need to be aware of these schemes that will bring you down. For Judah, their primary enemy was the surrounding nations who remembered when Israel was an unstoppable force in the world. This move to make Judah great again, if you will, isn't making the other nations very happy. Their first scheme was to infiltrate. They offered to join up with Judah to help them build the temple around the altar of God. But Zerubbabel, the leader, sniffed out their schemes and made this reply. Ezra chapter 4, verse 3. It says, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. But the enemy didn't stop just there. Kept pushing, kept prying, kept, kept trying to find his way in. Had many more tricks up their sleeves. They, lose, they used discouragement, fear, bribery, and even powered up on the broken people of Judah. And guess what happened? It worked. They stopped working on the temple and it lay dormant for 10 years. 
Ten years that they neglected building God's temple in the holy city, which God brought them out of exile and back to. And they just gave up, threw in the towel, and they focused on other things, other priorities. And I think for you and I, we can easily sit back reading on the pages and shake our heads on, boy, they don't get it. They don't get it at all. But in reality, I know there's plenty of times in my life where I didn't get it. Where it just went right over my head. On times where I became selfish to look after my priorities and not God's priorities. They turned their attention to building their own homes, raising their own families, and focusing on their individual lives. It's the single greatest mistake of any follower of God to switch your priorities. The priority is that it's going to be me first and God second. So guess what happened to them? Life was sheer bliss and happiness? No. Life didn't work out so great. They lost a sense of momentum of when they returned home. And one day, they have the most powerful king in the world opening up the coffers to fund the entire project and to protect them from their enemies. And now nothing. Someone turned off the spigot of blessing for the people of God. Their lives are in recession. They are stuck. Which leads to the final point. Remain open to correction. Remain open to to correction. And all of God's people said, careful. That's a tough one. God sent two prophets to them to confront them and get them back on track. God's discipline of his people is never to tear them down, but help them to get back on track. So do you guys remember the last time you were corrected? You received correction. Work, school, the hand of discipline, a friend, a stranger. What did it feel like? Great. Not so much. But did it make a difference? As a kid, I didn't just receive, I probably well-earned spankings in my childhood. It was a way of discipline where I'm from. But there came a day that those spankings didn't hurt so bad. It was like, I can take that. Or maybe even that cheekiness in my brain of saying, that was worth it. The punishment, not so bad. But it wasn't the physical hurt that happened from those spankings when it settled in. Emotionally, really opened my eyes to think about the things that I had done and how I had hurt other people and I needed some change in my life. But I'm not advocating for spankings, parents, grandparents. But I'm saying for me, for this tough, 
hard-headed, ornery teenage kid and, and child that it was a way to get through my thick skull. It was a way that I was corrected and it truly made a difference for me. I'm thankful I don't get spankings as an adult. I might not be walking around too well with all the mistakes that I make as a human being. But that doesn't exempt me from the need for correction in my life. So what does that look like? What does it mean to have healthy correction for the people of God in the family of God? I learned a lot from spankings, and every once in a while, I need God to whack me upside the head with the two-by-four or a club that might be easily understood. And I think for each and every one of us, that's probably true. Sometimes we need a big wake-up call to say, God, just set me in check sometimes because I need it. Sometimes my priorities don't align with yours. Sometimes I'm looking for, out for me, myself, and I, and not you, God. So correct me. Use people in my life that can speak truth, wisdom, and grace that I can be different and I can be changed. God sent the prophet Haggai to Judah to confront them. We read the text, or Julie read the text earlier. What were they doing? They were focusing on their houses, their homes. They were looking out for me, myself, and I. While this holy city, Jerusalem, which we know, and if you've ever gone and you've seen the, the majestic just representation of the history of Jerusalem, it's phenomenal. But they say, God, not right now. We can't focus on, uh, on a place of worship. We need to focus on our homes. And the priorities were skewed. And God was calling them out. So the same God who intervenes from the upper story to make the way back home is the same God in the lower story that frustrates them. To stop them in their tracks, to shift the momentum for the purpose of getting their attention and moving them back in the right direction. A form of correction. Here's an observation from 20 years of being a minister. It's true in my life and the lives of people that I seek to lead spiritually that most people are not open to correction. Oftentimes we present ourselves as being unteachable because we don't like to be confronted. When a marriage is deteriorating or an addiction is being formed or a negative behavior is becoming a pattern and a loving friend or a family member tries to confront it, most people get defensive and they don't want to listen. It's heartbreaking. So if you want to be a winner in life, you have to find a way to humble yourself and take tough news to heart. So for the record, I don't enjoy being corrected. But over the years, I've seen this inability to be teachable be the downfall of many, many people. So I've made it an intentional goal to become a person that's open to correction. Fortunately for me, I haven't made any mistakes in the last 20 years. Oh, no, I, I meant to say the last 20 minutes, not 20 years, sorry. Glad we got to correct that. We mess up. And I'm so thankful for people in my life 
that can set me straight. To speak wisdom, truth, and grace into my life. So the first thing I do when confrontation comes my way is to take a deep breath, refrain from immediate defensiveness, open up my ears, and catch this, guard my heart. Not open my heart, guard my heart. It's a big difference. The second thing I do is to consider the source. If it's coming from a person who has proven not to be for me, not to set me up for success, not to want to champion alongside of me, I shut them down. Not give them the satisfaction of a positive response. Because the motive is all wrong. They're almost always in it to tear you down or get something for themselves. And it's a selfish endeavor, whether they realize it or not. Once I shut them down, I take the core of their criticism into my prayer closet. And I ask God to reveal in me any kernel of truth that may or may not have been in their words. Something that I can learn from and process that God could use to make me a better person. A lot of times in these circumstances, God will tell me that it, the enemy was trying to give me some lies. And I should not own it, let it defeat me, or ruin my day. But what about on the other hand? When a person who has walked with me and is for me and loves me and loves God, and they confront me, I listen. And I listen intently. I don't always like it, but I listen. I don't automatically think they're in the right or what they're saying, but I listen to them, and I might even thank them for having the boldness to speak truth and wisdom into my life. Confronting someone you love is one of the hardest things to do. Now, what if we came to church and the pastor said, church, today we're not gonna have a sermon. I'm gonna pull up a chair, and I'm going to have you all stand in a line, and I want you each to give me a correction in life. That would be uplifting. You're like, Pastor, amen, I got something to get off my chest. Some of us, we have that relationship, and I'm thankful for that. The family of God, that we have a relationship that I know without a shadow of a doubt that I love you and you love me. And I invite you to speak that wisdom and truth into my life. Because I know you'll do it tenderly and graciously. But you'll also offer life-giving truth and vitality to my own spiritual formation. The harm happens when we think we have that relationship with someone. That we sugarcoat on, oh yeah, we go way back, we have history, we've done life together, so I'm going to speak truth or even my opinion to them. And we can really tear each other down. And that harms the family of God. That harms the church. So really, if you have correction to offer and God's put it on your heart, ask yourself, what's my relationship to this person? Do they know I love them? Above all else, do they know that I want to see the best 
for their life, that I believe in them, that I honor them. God, help me to speak truth through grace that their lives could be forever changed. To the glory of God now and forever. Amen. When Haggai and Zechariah delivered the news, they did the most unexpected thing. The people listened. The work on the temple resumed and was completed, and once again they experienced the wind of God's blessings at their backs. Some great stuff happened. So I want to leave you with some golden nuggets of truth. Returning home, it's emotional. It can be tough at times. We realize the change that happens in us, through us, around us, that people change. So in any thoughts of returning home, it has to encompass a, a life of prayer. So pray for the people who need to return home. Those people that have left and they need to come back. Those who have returned, but they're struggling. They're still feeling the pressures and the beatdown of life that's weighing heavy on their shoulders. They need your support and encouragement. They need your prayers. And pray for those who have someone that they love who needs to come back home. Because there's no greater loss and hurt in the world than the people that you love unconditionally that don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Pray for your brothers and sisters that are going through that struggle. Share those deep sorrows and hurts with them that God would move in a mighty way. Will you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your unconditional love, grace, and mercy. God, help us to have deep-rooted relationships in which iron sharpens iron. God, help us to receive words of correction. Help us to stomp out the enemy from our very own lives. But God, help us to keep the main thing the main thing by putting you in your rightful place of being at the sole focus of our lives, not just on a Sunday morning at 10 a.m., but on Mondays, Tuesdays, through the remainder of the week and into the weekend. God, that your glory is echoed through and through through everything that we say and do. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.